I found myself being surprised repeatedly as I delved into the research on Eamon de Valera, the central figure on this series. My initial shock stemmed from how little I knew about Irish history, which was particularly surprising considering that I grew up in the Chicagoland area, where there's a pervasive belief that we all share a little bit of Irish heritage. Additionally, I was taken back by how closely his narrative mirrors the final years of the Trump presidency. Despite the parallels, every time I've mentioned the resemblance between America's 45th president and Ireland's second, I've been met with puzzled expressions. Eamon de Valera, a pivotal figure in Irish politics from 1916 to 1973, elicits shrugs from even well-informed Americans who lived through his reign, accompanied by a perplexed, who's that, at the mention of his Spanish-sounding name. While there are substantial differences in the intentions and capabilities of de Valera and Trump, the events they were involved in and the attitudes they expressed are remarkably similar. Despite dedicating an extensive amount of time to analyzing Donald Trump in real time, it was shocking to discover any leader comparable to the Donald. Yet Eamon de Valera emerges as that figure. De Valera exhibited authoritarian tendencies, without fully embracing authoritarianism. An outsider who ascended to the pinnacle of Irish politics, he wielded his influence to reshape it according to his vision. His speeches could incite insurrections, which he would later disavow, simultaneously asserting that the media had consistently misinterpreted his words. He considered himself a deal-maker, a resolute negotiator who rarely compromised, occasionally opposing those who exceeded his requests. He perceived conspiracies lurking in the shadows of setbacks, never accepting blame for anything that went awry. Remarkably, he could convince himself that substantial shifts in his positions were consistent with his original stance, even if they constituted a complete reversal. Eamon de Valera's story is intricate and expansive underscoring that the narrative of Irish independence cannot be recounted without shining a spotlight directly on him. However, the story of the Free State of Ireland traces its origins further back for the Emerald Isle. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This series focuses on Irish politician Eamon de Valera. Episode number one, The Formative Years. Many of Ireland's most well-known settlements trace their origins to Viking incursions. Dublin, for instance, was established and utilized by Norse warriors as a winter camp during the 9th and 10th centuries. The Normans, arriving with William the Conqueror in 1066, also consistently invaded Ireland, 
engaging in violent conflicts with the early Irish. In fact, Ireland's history is one born of tragedy, with one of the greatest offenses occurring in 1177 when Henry II placed his incompetent son John in charge of Ireland. Another Henry, Henry VIII, initiated the British colonization of Ireland in earnest, declaring himself King of Ireland in 1541. The predominantly Catholic Ireland became the battleground for Henry's conflict with the Pope in Rome after Clement VII refused to annul his marriage. Establishing his own church in opposition to the Catholics, Henry targeted Irish Gaelic culture, including its language, and appointed lackeys, often Protestants, to oversee the most fertile lands in Ireland. For the Irish, the imposition of English law, language, culture, and religion was intolerable. The 16th and 17th centuries brought the Plantation Period, during which six counties in the north were designated for English settlers to establish farming communities. Despite resistance, the Plantation Period, at best, achieved mixed success, establishing a pro-Britain Protestant population in northern Ulster. While de Valera's failure to unify the entire island as a free state is a significant mark on his career, Understanding the problem's roots that spanned over 1,000 years makes this failure more comprehensible. The deep-rooted Catholic culture, in place since St. Patrick drove the snakes out in the mid-5th century, meant that Protestant Brits from Henry VII's line would always view the Irish as potential enemies, ready to align with England's Catholic foes, particularly Spain and France. In de Valera's era in the 20th century, this fear would manifest once again, this time with the Germans. Before de Valera arrived on the scene, Ireland was already a land where survival was a constant struggle. Rebellions, religiously fueled violence, and oppression defined much of the island's history during the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries. In 1789, penal laws excluded Catholics from land ownership, limited their access to education, and prevented them from voting. British strictness reached a point where it was illegal for anyone to bear green flags, or political banners at public demonstrations in 1840. However, no incident captures the disdain between the two nations more vividly than the Irish potato famine. While the famine itself was a consequence of an invasive species rather than biological warfare, England's response to the blight serves as a glaring example of policy failure. British policies exacerbated the disaster tenfold. Under the Penal Law of 1704, any land inherited by a Catholic had to be divided among his sons, both legitimate and illegitimate. As Irish Catholics tended to have numerous children, 
nearly every Irishman owned multiple plots of land that were all incapable of producing enough food, let alone enough to make a profit. Irish historian Tim Pat Coogan detailed this in his 2012 book titled The Famine Plot, arguing that the potato famine claiming over one million Irish lives between 1845 and 1851 was the result of deliberate policy decisions to punish the quote, damned Irish, as Coogan puts it, for their attachment to Catholicism and Irish ways while refusing to conform to the British line. It's crucial to note that Ireland was a colony with close economic and trade ties to England, merely an afternoon boat trip or a 20-minute flight away. As individuals starved, the British maintained mandatory food exports and hindered relief efforts rather than supporting their people, viewing the famine as an opportunity rather than a crisis. Charles Trevelyn, in charge of famine relief, even wrote a letter describing the blight as the judgment of God. And he believed there were at least one to two million more people than who could adequately live in Ireland. Under Trevelyn, the starving poor had to earn relief aid through hard labor, resulting in so-called famine roads that often led nowhere. In 1847, the Poor Law was passed, stating that no family with more than a quarter acre of land could receive relief, an effort to force small landholders to sell to British settlers. Scotland recovered from its own potato famine far more quickly, in part because it was more active and collaborative with English relief organizations than Ireland was. The potato famine triggered mass migration from Ireland to various countries, including England, Scotland, Wales, Australia, and North America. Emigration continued regularly as the Irish became key workers in East Coast cities like New York by the end of the 19th century. In 1850, 26% of New York City's total population were Irish immigrants. And that's where De Valera's story begins, in New York City, where his mother, Kate Cole, had emigrated. Born in December of 1856, four years after the end of the Great Famine, she found work as a maid for a wealthy French family in Manhattan. Eamon, born Edward De Valera, has no memory of his father. His mother's tale told to him paints an ideal version of America as a melting pot of cultures. His father, Juan Vivian de Valera, a Spanish sculptor, came to tutor the children at Kate's work, and they soon fell in love. They were married in a ceremony at St. Patrick's Church in New Jersey, and less than a year later they were the proud parents of little Eamon. His father fell ill, though, and while the nature of his illness remains unknown to this day, his decision to go west under the suggestion that drier air would benefit him suggests tuberculosis as a possibility. He would die away from his home and family two years later. 
We're all well aware from our own experiences that the stories we remember from childhood are not always as accurate as we wish. Just as we chuckle at our grandparents' tales of enduring freezing rain on the way to school, there are inconsistencies in the narrative young Eamon de Valera was fed about his father. For instance, there is no record of his parents' wedding at St. Patrick's. Moreover, Kate had to correct Eamon's birth certificate, initially indicating his father's name as George de Valera rather than Vivian. Kate's brother, living in New York at the time, couldn't even recall any details about Vivian or their wedding, despite having a close relationship with his sister. In fact, the only evidence of Vivian de Valera's existence was Kate's word, and she seemed confused on several details. Take, for instance, the story of his death out west. At one point, Kate mentioned that he died in Colorado, but later in life, the city changed to Minneapolis. On another occasion, Kate told visitors that Vivian was an only child, but she later revealed to her son that Vivian had a brother named Leon and a sister named Charlotte. The fact that these names are decidedly French and not Spanish went over the head of the young de Valera. In all likelihood, Vivian was a creation of Kate's imagination. The clearest evidence of all is that Eamon was born on October 14, 1882, at the New York Nursery and Child Hospital, an institute for destitute, unwed, and working mothers. Eamon was baptized Catholic seven weeks later. If you're looking for a motive for what appears to be lies, remember that it would have been both scandalous and sinful for a young Catholic woman to give birth out of wedlock. Unable to provide a decent home for her family as an unmarried working mother at the age of two, Eamon crossed the Atlantic to be raised by his grandmother in Beret, County Limerick. Kate would marry a second time, this time to the very real Charles Wheelwright, and they had a son named Thomas Wheelwright. In official records, Kate is listed as having been married only once and having two children, one of whom was living. It was as if her first child, Eamon, was not just out of sight, but out of mind as well. This exploration into the identity of his father is not intended to denigrate Eamon's mother. Being a female Catholic immigrant in New York City was undoubtedly a challenge. Adding unwed mother to that list would have threatened the few connections she had managed to make. Eamon maintained regular correspondence with both his mother and his brother-in-law, and by his own account, had an excellent relationship with the Wheelwrights. Instead, we are probing Kate's story because it mattered directly to Eamon. His exotic last name, De Valera, was both an asset and a liability to his political rise. 
It helped him stand out in the crowded Irish political field and was instantly recognizable. However, it was also used to discredit him by political opponents, the British and even the Nazis, who alleged that de Valera might be Jewish. He was negatively referred to as the Spaniard, the Mexican, the Spanish-American bastard, as well as the slur of illegitimate Dago. Later in life, Eamon went to great lengths, hiring private investigators to prove the existence of the story his mother had related to him. While the absence of evidence is not proof, it seems damning in this instance, as no one was able to definitively prove that Vivian was more than a figment of his mother's imagination. In 1916, the future leader of Ireland even publicly questioned whether in international law, am I a Spaniard or an American? Bruray County Limerick, nestled in rural Ireland, was a region marked by economic hardship. While the community was relatively impoverished, Bruray stood as home to politically active and strongly nationalistic individuals. Eamon's personality was shaped in the bedrock of these nationalistic ideals. Although during his childhood these ideals were not conscious thoughts, and would later need to be awakened in his life. Despite Eamon's success in school, his memoirs suggest a strong sense of perpetual solitude. According to one of his biographers, Eamon was always engrossed in a book, living out adventures confined to his imagination. His favorite childhood pastime was playing Robinson Crusoe, alone by the creek near his grandmother's house. The full title of Defoe's masterpiece begins with the life and strange surprising adventures of Robinson Crusoe of York, Mariner, who lived eight and twenty years, all alone in an uninhabited island on the coast of America. It was during these occasions by the creek that de Valera would imagine himself as the king of his own little section of Ireland. Little did he know at the time that these seemingly foolish games as a youth would prove to be somewhat prophetic. Education statistically stands as the most likely way out of poverty for the rural poor, and it would indeed prove to be Amon's path. However, the cost of education often serves as an insurmountable barrier for the working poor. De Valera understood that his sole option to pay for college would be to secure a scholarship, known in Ireland as an exhibition. Ireland had an intensely competitive education system that pitted students in age groups against their peers nationwide via standardized tests. In 1898, the 15-year-old Eamon placed 45th among all male candidates in the country, and 50th overall among all men and women who took the test. He earned honors in all seven subjects. 
While the scores were not strong enough to attend college near his home in Limerick, they were sufficient to both attend and afford Black Rock College, located just four miles outside of Dublin's city center. The 16-year-old de Valera flourished during his first year in college, coming in first in the school during the middle grade intermediate examinations. His performance was enough to place him eighth nationally, and granted him a large exhibition good for the next two years. Things dropped off, however, on the next series of tests, as de Valera got honors in only six of the seven subjects. He received only a passing grade in trigonometry. His precipitous drop to 40th place nationally meant that instead of a full exhibition, he was only awarded enough to pay for his books. This moment represented the first of many crossroads for Amon de Valera. He still had one more year at Black Rock available due to the previous two-year exhibition he had initially won. But it would have been understandable for de Valera to give up at this point. We all know individuals who do not respond well to setbacks under pressure. But one of the defining characteristics of Eamon is his unwillingness to back down in the face of a challenge. He chose to remain in school and to bet on himself. At this point in time, Eamon desired to become a priest, a shockingly competitive position to achieve in Ireland at this time. It was a position that required a full college degree with extremely high marks to enter the parochial ranks. It also required proving that you were the product of a legitimate Catholic marriage, a challenge that would require him to eventually produce his parents' non-existent marriage certificate. Adding to the pressure he was already putting upon himself, his younger half-brother Tom was able to achieve all of this already in America. Deciding that the marriage certificate was a bridge that he would figure out how to cross later, de Valera decided to remain in Black Rock and doubled down on his studies. Failure to secure another exhibition would force him to drop out and return to Bruray without any clear prospects for the future. Like many in today's collegiate ranks, de Valera had trouble staying awake while studying. He even visited the school's doctor in hopes of finding a remedy for this problem. Unable to medicate away his need for sleep, Eamon began to study while sitting in the high branches of a tree. Evidently, the fear of falling was enough to keep his eyes focused on their assigned task. The efforts paid off, literally. In his final round of exams at Black Rock, he was able to secure an exhibition that was close to the cost of tuition. He began to teach an introductory mathematics course on the side to make up the difference, and would go on to continue his education at Rockwell College, Black Rock's sister institution. Achieving another exhibition didn't mean that life was suddenly easy for de Valera. But life in college also wasn't all studying either. 
De Valera was active on the rugby team and made a number of lifelong influential friends from his time on the pitch. It was these friends that he would write to, instead of his wife, when he was facing a death sentence for his role in the 1916 Easter Rising. It would be his teammates and the priests that taught him at school that would, along with his wife, plead for his release from his prison sentence of life imprisonment. While he had a core group of friends, life was different for De Valera. And it is in these little moments of differences that we get to see the true personality of the man that would rule Ireland. One story claims that Dev's friends would regularly make wagers that involved the loser buying a round at their local pub, Keegan's. For De Valera, money was always a worry. And apparently, after realizing that the wager that day would imperil whoever was the slowest over the college's wall on the way to the pub, De Valera spent all day researching and studying the hand and footholds of the wall, just to make sure that he would not be the last over. He was nothing if not stubbornly meticulous. He also hated to lose, particularly when he thought that he was right which was most of the time. These traits would turn Eamon into one of the greatest and most frustrating negotiators of all time. One individual forced to sit on the other side of the table from him once claimed, he is the most peculiar man, and I hope that God only sees fit to throw away the mold and be content with only creating one of his ilk. Another called him a most curious personality, certainly not normal, on the borderline between genius and insanity. De Valera continued his studies and rugby career at Rockwell College while falling in love with teaching mathematics courses to younger students. At one point, telling a friend that he loves to study so much that if it were taken from him, he would feel the loss of his best friend. His time at Rockwell also gives us our first look at what made De Valera the tough-nosed negotiator that he was. The standoff occurred with Rockwell's president in 1903, and it was over hot chocolate. You might imagine that there are a lot of things that the Irish are willing to fight over, but I doubt that you knew that chocolate was near the top of the list. Ireland takes a surprising amount of pride in its milk chocolate. They like to claim that the abundance of year-round green grass means their 1.1 million dairy cows produce milk that is more cream-colored and results in particularly rich and luscious milk chocolate. I knew none of this before visiting Dublin in 2016 and spending the evening at one of the numerous Butler's Chocolate Cafes. My wife and I had intended to head to the Temple District, the main area for pubs in the city, but were happily waylaid for the entire evening upon discovering that they served 20 different varieties of homemade hot chocolate. I personally favored one that utilized white chocolate imported from South Africa. 
All this is to say that the Irish take their hot cocoa seriously. The crisis began when the college president announced cost reductions across the board, including removing the beverage from all staff lounges. Eamon immediately marched into the president's office, contract in hand to point out that free access to hot chocolate was a part of his deal. He informed the president that if he were not to receive his contractually obligated cocoa, he would have to move into a local hotel, which to mine and my children's delight still to this day always offer free hot chocolate for guests. Of course, he would charge the college for the fee of his hotel stay. Under pressure, the president relented and told Eamon that he would still get his hot chocolate, but he couldn't tell the other professors, nor could he drink it in front of them. A normal human being wouldn't have marched into his boss's office with such a silly demand, nor would they, upon winning back their desired drink of choice, demand more than what Eamon had been offered. But God truly did break the mold with this one. He refused the counteroffer and began to threaten to lead an entire staff-wide strike over the issue. In short order, hot chocolate was returned to all of the staff lounges. Eamon would always get exactly what he asked for in a negotiation, occasionally more than he asked for, but never less. He would also prove to be unmovable from the original positions that he took. In this case, his contract said that he was entitled to hot chocolate whenever he wanted it. It did not matter what the justification for the other side was. Right was right, and a contract was binding. Or it was if Eamon said it was. His studies at Rockwell were not as successful as his teaching, however. He achieved passing grades in the first set of exams, but did not achieve honors. This served to freshly reawaken fears that were always close to the surface, that he would be unable to achieve the priesthood or even remain in college. With these scores, even a permanent teaching position might have been out of reach. After the next series of exams, he left Rockwell for Trinity College in Dublin. De Valera was only one of 34 Catholics out of that year's class of 320 students. The exhibition examinations occurred at the beginning of the school year and served as their declaration of a major. De Valera chose mathematics which is somewhat shocking based upon Dev's past data points. If you recall, it was trigonometry that was the only subject he failed to achieve honors in while he was at Blackwell. While he loved mathematics and taught math classes, it was regularly his weakest subject. One of his mentor professors, Arthur Conway, suggested that the pressure of the exams ruined Dev's accuracy. Conway admitted that Eamon's mathematical abilities are of a high order, and he is possessed of great brilliancy and originality. 
but found that he was more adapted to excel in research work, which was untimed. In the scholarship exam at Trinity, De Valera came in dead last out of 13 candidates. So why then did he choose math? De Valera never revealed any doubt regarding his choice. He retained a love of math for his entire life. This included demands for math books while he was in prison and refusing in old age to go on a walk unless his secretary prepared a math question for him to ponder. But if you look below the surface of the decision and include what we know about his personality, there seems to be a lot of calculated fear in the decision to declare for math. The math scholarship had by far and away the fewest applicants, meaning that he would be facing significantly less competition for honors. Vienna's psychoanalysis Alfred Adler coined the term inferiority complex. According to Adler, people who feel inferior go about their days overcompensating through what he called striving for superiority. He points out that many narcissists are vulnerable, who underneath the bravado feel weak and helpless. Eamon's desire to win the competition may have been an example of his subconscious insecurity taking over. It is during this same period that he had become acutely aware that there was a problem acquiring his mother's marriage certificate, which had been a requirement for anybody applying to the priesthood. It was also around this time that Eamon's mother offered her 24-year-old son a place in her American life. These were both brushed aside, despite the fact that De Valera did not yet know what his future held but he was determined that his future was in Ireland. He finished with Trinity College, and as an admission that he would never become a priest, accepted a full-time professorship of mathematics at Black Rock College. It appeared as if Ireland's Robinson Crusoe had found his little island that he could be content ruling. He was doing something that he loved, surrounded by friends who were always available for a pickup rugby game. Eamon was, for this moment, content. A feeling that he will not have again, maybe ever again in his life. He even met the one love of his life during this time. The Gaelic League was founded in 1893. This organization was committed to restoring the traditional Irish language, which had been banned by the English in 1537. The stated aim of the Statute of Ireland was to prevent the people using a speech nothing like the natural mother tongue of English within the British realm and to extinguish the sinister traditions and customs differing from the laws of England. The revival of the Irish language was seen by many as a prerequisite to maintaining and understanding Irish identity. Unfortunately for myself as a native English speaker, I have to admit 
that the pronunciations of Irish and Gaelic are incredibly difficult, and for sure nothing like the natural mother tongue of the English. While I'll attempt to get the pronunciations to the best of my ability, just know that when you look up something, you might not want to spell it in the phonetic manner. UNESCO estimates that there are 3,000 endangered languages worldwide, with 230 having gone extinct within the last 50 years. Today, the fight to preserve Native American languages represents a struggle similar to what the Gaelic League went through. 150 Native American languages remain, and the National Congress of American Indians declared native languages to be in a state of emergency. The preservation of these languages is rarely thought of outside of the cultural centers of the tribes. In my history classes, the only time native languages come up is as a part of the wonderful story of the Navajo Code Talkers during World War II. For those that don't know, the Navajo language would prove to be an unbreakable code for the Allies during the war. Today, native reservations have so few economic opportunities that a large portion of residents have to either embrace extremely long work commutes or abandon the reservation entirely. Since everyone on the reservation already knows English, and the fact that no one off the reservation utilizes their native tongue, these languages are in danger of going extinct. Knowing the language is fundamental to ensure complete understanding of the tribe's mythology, history, and culture. There are studies that present an even more critical viewpoint on the importance of preserving culturally distinct languages. Studies among the Hopi Indians attempt to establish correlation between a decline in youth speaking the language and a rise in gang activity and disrespect of their elders. Supporting the conclusion of these studies was a 2015 look at how mandatory Hawaiian language immersion in schools has resulted in a return to respecting family values and boosting tolerance. The Gaelic League serves as a precursor to these American language immersion programs. In 1910, the League succeeded in making the teaching of the Irish language compulsory in 1913. This meant that all teachers would require some understanding and ability to communicate in traditional Irish. This decision, probably more than any other, would put Eamon de Valera on the path that would result in him being the most influential Irish politician in history. First, he met his wife, Sinead, through language courses that he was taking to fulfill his teaching requirements. Eamon had a tendency to retroactively change the past to make it so that all of his decisions appear clearly thought out in a cohesive and designed manner. He claimed to his official biographers that he had always had a long-standing interest in Irish and had always been anxious to learn it. Still, it is only after it is necessary for his career that he takes any steps towards that goal. Remember, 
despite my calling him by the name Eamon thus far, he is actually still named Edward at this point in the story. It is only after he joined the Gaelic League that his name is officially changed to Eamon, the closest Irish equivalent to his English birth name. While it is unclear how much he originally desired to take the step to recover his traditional language, no one can question the effort that he put towards learning it once he began. His future wife, Sinead, had joined the Gaelic League in 1899. Her upbringing was a pretty traditional story for most Irish families. Her parents had emigrated to New York City and attempted to make it in America before deciding to return home. Her father was a carpenter, and her parents grew up in the same town as children, and Sinead was the ninth of their eleven children. She was a teacher, and like most teachers, donated her free time to additional teaching, in this case the Irish language. Unlike her future husband, she was incredibly politically engaged, but will remain on the political sidelines upon marriage, in accordance with traditional Irish Catholic views regarding the roles for husbands and wives. De Valera himself had strong opinions related to the belief that a woman's role remained exclusively in the home. We will explore these beliefs in more detail when we examine his rewriting of the Irish Constitution in 1937. Eamon, for his part, showed no inclination towards politics. Content with his hot chocolate and controlling the little piece of the world that was his classroom. The romance between the two seems like a bit of a whirlwind compared to modern-day standards. Eamon had only had one other romantic relationship, and it fizzled out within a month. Some of this is likely related to the singular focus and stress that he was under trying to earn enough money to remain in college. More of it, however, is likely related to the fact that his goal in life had been to become a priest. Celibacy is all too often conveniently defined by individuals in the moment, but if he intended to take the vows of the priesthood, any relationship was doomed from the start. The strictest definitions of celibacy essentially outlaw any frivolous relationship activity. Even though he doesn't become a priest, Eamon still retained his devout Catholic beliefs and standards that were common to the early 1900s. After six months of courtship, Eamon and Sinead were engaged to be married and would be husband and wife seven months after that. Sinead, who came to know her husband better than anyone later, recalled that this impulsiveness was in character, saying in small things Dev is very much given to weighing things. He sees all the difficulties and takes all the precautions. On the other hand, when a big matter is at stake, she says, he will go boldly forward. On January 8, 1910, the two were married in an exclusively Irish ceremony. The use of the Gaelic language was still so limited across Ireland 
that the day before the wedding, Eamon had gone to a library to double-check that they had the correct phrases. He spent so much time researching the subject that his bicycle was stolen. According to the newlyweds, the priest had to learn Irish for the ceremony, and according to the bride, he had married them two or three times before he had gotten the words right. Their relationship would last until their deaths, which occurred just days before their 65th wedding anniversary. The two had five children and a large number of grandchildren, many of whom remained active on the Irish political scene today. Whether it was right or not, the decision for Sinead to remain in the home was one that both she and her husband supported. When her husband transitioned to the office of the presidency, it was time for her to take a more public role as the First Lady of Ireland. This was not a role that she desired, and it was one that she performed with due diligence, but a lot of angst. Sinead's willingness to support her husband from the home allowed him to maintain an intense work schedule throughout his political life. When he was on campaign, De Valera would run himself to the ground, literally making himself sick afterwards by giving significantly more speeches and public appearances than anyone else. While serving as the Taoiseach, which was the equivalent role of America's Speaker of the House, but with the requisite powers of a Prime Minister, he would arrive to work between 9.30 and 10 in the morning, and would frequently stay until midnight. He routinely went home for both lunch and tea, but besides that, work appeared to be De Valera's true love. Despite this, there are hints about the role that his wife played as an unendingly loyal confidant. Their son Terry said that his father relied upon his mother in every decision that he made, and it was said that the way to Dev was through Mrs. Dev. After getting hitched, De Valera continued to progress through the ranks of the Gaelic League, which served to tap into the latent nationalism that he had managed to ignore in his home county. The League grew by attempting to sidestep traditional controversies in Ireland by proclaiming itself as neither Protestant nor Catholic, as well as neither Unionist nor Separatist. While language was the public focus for the work of the League, its true goal was always Irish independence, and most of the individuals involved in the Easter Rising were first introduced to each other through the Gaelic League. The paper, Irish Freedom, brazenly declared that the work of the Gaelic League is to prevent the assimilation of the Irish nation by the English nation. The Irish language is a political weapon of the first importance against English encroachment. De Valera's rise in the ranks of the League was momentarily halted after he lost an election. Among his many personality traits, De Valera rarely believed that he failed. Like many who have authoritarian tendencies, Eamon tended to scapegoat others for his own shortcomings. 
In this instance, he believed that there was a conspiracy hatched in the shadows by a small political party named Sinn Féin. Sinn Féin was created in 1905 by Arthur Griffin with the goal of establishing in Ireland's capital a national legislature endowed with the moral authority of the Irish nation. The party was new and so unpopular that they had trouble running candidates under their banner. Upon hearing of his defeat, he supposedly told Sinead that he would never have anything to do with Sinn Féin. Within a couple of years, however, he would be the head of their party. Ironically, Eamon de Valera was actually close to the truth. The election had, in fact, been rigged against him. Although he was accepted as part of the Gaelic League, it was believed by those in the shadows that de Valera was neither a good enough leader nor nationalistic enough to continue progressing in the party. It was not Sinn Féin, however, that had made this laughable character assessment. Unbeknownst to de Valera at this time, the Gaelic League had been infiltrated by the Irish Republican Brotherhood. The IRB, as it was regularly referred to, was a secret, oath-bound, fraternal society founded in 1858. The organization itself was born out of the shadows. Following defeat in the Rebellion of 1848, the rebel leadership went to Paris to sidestep British arrest warrants. And there, James Stevens set himself to the task of mastering the techniques of conspiracy to achieve what he had been unable to do with the force of arms. Each IRB member only knew a small portion of the other members in the secret society. Each individual designated as a colonel was labeled as an A. They then chose nine Bs, who in turn chose nine Cs, who subsequently would then choose nine Ds. In this way, each individual A was only known to his Bs, and those Bs would only be known to their Cs. The oath that they took read like this, In the presence of God I do solemnly swear that I will do my utmost to establish the independence of Ireland, and that I will bear true allegiance to the Supreme Council of the Irish Republican Brotherhood and the government of the Irish Republic, and implicitly obey the constitution of the Irish Republican Brotherhood and all my superior officers, and that I will preserve all the secrets of the organization. The beginning of the 20th century saw a steep decline in the membership of the IRB. In 1879, it was believed that the organization had 35,000 members. By 1912, that number was down to 1,660. This decline would begin to reverse as the older leadership was replaced with fresh new faces. Sean McDermida and Tom Clark, the two primary instigators of the Easter Rising, joined the Brotherhood in 1908 and began to use the Gaelic League as political cover for IRB operations. Officially, the Brotherhood would take over the upper echelons of the League's leadership, and in 1915, 
it succeeded in amending the Gaelic League's mission statement to include a commitment to seek a free Irish nation. The story of Eamon de Valera's life will take unexpected turns, and the intersection of his journey with the Irish Republican Brotherhood adds complexity to his narrative. Unbeknownst to him, de Valera's involvement with the Gaelic League served as a conduit for radicalization, although he wasn't initially politicized. Historian David McCullough suggests that while the Gaelic League was a breeding ground for IRB recruitment, there's no evidence of an attempt to recruit de Valera. At this juncture, he was unwittingly drawn into a larger game orchestrated by those seeking power. By the age of 30, de Valera had already accomplished much. He was happily married with two children. He held a steady job as a minor academic, and he had developed a newfound passion for his people's traditional language. Little did he know that the next four years would set the stage for him to become a dominant figure in the Irish Republican movement, ultimately driving the quest for Irish independence. The twists and turns of his journey would shape the course of history in ways unforeseen at this moment. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry at gmail.com. If you would like to financially support the show, please look in the description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word. <laughs>